welcome to the Black Minds Matter podcast, where we discuss the root causes of educational inequality and the hope we have for a better path forward. Our essence and our being deserve life. Enjoy the show. Tell me a story. Which one? The story of home. Millions of years ago, a meteorite made of vibranium, the strongest substance in the universe, struck the continent of Africa, affecting the plant life around it. And when the time of men came, five tribes settled on it and called it Wakanda. Yes, and that is exactly what we're talking about today. So thank you lovely ladies for being here with me today. We are talking about what schools would look like in Wakanda. Such a brief title, uh, but a very deep and impactful conversation that I think is so beneficial for us to have. And so thank you so much for joining. We have Felicia Peoples, we have Naomi Shelton, Brianna Gilchrist, and Lisa Watson. I've had the honor to of interacting with all of these powerful ladies um, in different uh, scenarios and in different spaces. And I am very grateful to have you guys in my network. I'll start with Lisa. Um, I met Lisa in St. Louis. She is a city. I know, Kansas City, Kansas. She definitely like each day I was like, where are we? Kansas City, Missouri or Kansas City, Kansas. I, anyway, met her in Kansas City. And she is such a rock star, definitely a grassroots advocate. Um, she hosted a, 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 an event called Can Poverty um, Be Eliminated Because of School Choice? and just a, a fantastic event and i had the pleasure of speaking there and lisa um thank you so much for joining brianna gilchrist um that's my girl hey brianna uh she is an, a, a charter alum so she went to a charter school in new jersey is on the board of a charter school the charter school she went to in new jersey um has worked here in dc to make things better for students in uh and uh, who grew up like us, who grew up um, low income, living in poverty, to have a better education. And she is literally like the most entrepreneurial person I've ever met. Um, and Tanisha Peoples, um, the beast on Twitter, she is, every time I, I'm like always just so honored to like see everything that you write and post because you are just so great. And everybody, please look at her. Um, is it on Mondays? What it's on Mondays. Um, our show is called, can I curse on? Can I curse? Hey, why not? Okay. So our show is called Talk That Real Shit. And it's with me, Jason, um, Allen, and Nehemiah Frank. And it is very great. And Naomi Shelton. Met Naomi here in DC. She was on the charter board uh, in DC. And now she works at KIPP. Um, just so fantastic. A part of the... And, you and Tanisha are part of the Black Journalism uh, organization, and so I'm just very awesome and grateful to do this. So let's let's jump right in. First, when you guys, uh, the movie Black Panther um, was two years ago now, and when you guys first saw it, were you a little bit jealous? Like, I wish I could have lived there. <laughs> I mean, full transparency, I was jealous and also very annoyed. 
because I was like, if Wakanda was out there, like, why did slavery happen? And why are so many black people in poverty if you guys have, like, a whole country that could have literally saved our lives? But I was still very just happy to see, like, so many beautiful people of color in one space and being able to be their authentic selves. Like, even everything down to their hairstyles and what they were able to wear casually walking in the street. I was like, this is where I need to be. And why doesn't this exist for real? I wouldn't, uh, I would absolutely agree with that. The idea of what is possible and being able to see um, after, you know, however many decades of seeing the Marvel universe portrayed one particular way, it was really exciting to see um, black characters and all black cast talking about black brilliance and all the things that were, it's possible for us to, to have and that we have, we just have that untapped uh, either location or a way to get us to liberation. Uh, so I watch, I think I watch uh, Black Panther at least once a quarter just to like stay fresh, <laughs> have it top of mind. Um, and I fly a lot. So that's one of the movies that I'll watch while I'm flying. Yeah, I um I agree with Naomi and Brianna. I just think that it was, it was a, a beautiful use of imagination and adaptation of what our communities would look like, you know, probably had we been left the hell alone. Um, you know, but it was it was certainly empowering and it was just, you know, like they said, beautiful to see an all black cast and see us just win for once, something that you don't see in, in media or in movies. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna have to admit I was probably one of the last people to see it. I'm not into the comic world at all. So the most inspiration I had about the film was when you sent the the question and my brain just got electrified and, oh my gosh the power of that question and the power of what black black utopias look like and the power of us being empowered to see this is up to us to build it's not up to anybody else to build anything to educate our children they're our children they're a gift from god and what are we doing what strategies are we trying to put together and to echo tanisha to say Leave us alone. Let us go and map out this plan for us to do better. And so that's where we need to come together. If we come into agreement, and I find that that's the, hard, the first hurdle, can we come into agreement as a community and say, there is not one black person in America that does not want to see our subscribe? I don't care what political persuasion you have, what persuasion you have. That should be the priority. Nothing is going to change in America if we do not invest in the next generation. Yeah, I saw um, what you guys are definitely Marvel uh, fans and the mm -hmm. press you guys send emails back and forth like, yeah, did you know this? And I'm like, whoa, I definitely need to go and research my uh, Marvel comics. Um, but somebody who is also Walter, you guys know Walter, he said, make sure you say that Wakanda was not colonized. That's and right. Absolutely. That's right. Oh, don't worry, that was coming up. Left us alone. And that's one of the things. It's like it was not colonized, literally set here in the mountains, developed and created all of these innovative things. And I mean, yeah. What do you guys think about that? For us, by us, the revolt, charter schools, schools that are created and designed by us and for us. Well, I, I thought that was going to be the argument that I was going to make, and that was probably going to be the most controversial argument. So I didn't know if everybody was going to be on board with that aspect 
I'm not advocating it 100%, but I think life is a buffet, particularly in America, particularly in free markets. So we should be able to have some of everything on the buffet. Yeah, Lisa, I think you have some background noise. Okay, let me mute for a second and get my earphones. Yeah, what do you guys think? About? I mean, we like Lisa said, we're all up on the same. It sounds like the feedback is still there. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yep. So, um, just to speak to that point, I think uh, so. I'm in the middle of a fellowship. And one of the early readings that they had us uh, read through was a, a hat tip to Octavia Butler um, and the idea of what is Afrofuturism? What does it mean to like reimagine all the things that are possible? What does that really look like to really blend um, the future, what we know to be true about technology and what's possible to build upon that to create our own, you know, utopia? What is it that we'd want to see? When you, when you read young adult fiction and you see all these things about dy dystopian themes, you see this um, playing out of like, everything's very gray and everything is, you know, very different from what we experience now, but it's not advanced in significant ways. And what I appreciated about uh, Black Panther was like, they were light years ahead of the rest of the world and were able to like have that in their own space and let the rest of the world think that they were, you know, a third world country. Um, and I think that that speaks to what the Black, American Black uh, community has in terms of like, we have all this untapped um, vibranium that we could, you know, easily, you know, if we were able to tap into it and really do something beyond what we know to be true now. And I think that's one of the things that I appreciated about the, the reading was that it's about like thinking about what's possible. It doesn't have to be what, the, what exists right now. It's about what's possible. Um, and that was one of the things that helped me reframe um, how I thought about defund the police. What does that mean? It doesn't mean we need to eradicate this this um, entity. We need to change the way that it is now, right? And it's not just like, oh, let's reform these things because we've been asking for that. But it's now, if you were to start over, if this if this institution didn't exist, how would you rebuild what it is that we need? And that's how I think about Afrofuturism, what's possible for black kids, what's possible when it comes to like taking police out of schools, all of the things. And that just, that gets me riled up and excited because anything is possible. So let's go around. What would, even if it's like, what would classroom, I don't even know if they have, would have classrooms in Wakanda, right. but what, what would it first, what would it look like, like scene wise? Will we still be in buildings? What would it? For me personally, I, I'm i on the board of a Montessori school and I'm a huge fan of Montessori education. Um, and I'm also a, a huge fan of hands-on learning. Had I had the opportunity to be in the Montessori um, setting in K through 12, I would have absolutely taken advantage of that. So if I could reimagine the classroom, the classroom for me would be in the community. And I was having a conversation with um, one of my fellow activists earlier about, and this is, I don't know if I'm just going outside of what we're talking about, but I, we were talking about gentrification and how it kind of sucks like the culture. It's sucking the culture out of black communities. And um, on the side of activism, we're trying to preserve some of that culture and some of that life. And so for me, it would be the preservation of our community so that our kids, our young people and our families period 
can experience that history and that culture and learn from that. So it's very hands-on learning. It's not in the traditional classroom, stuck looking at, you know, some pasty teacher, no shade to the teachers, but sometimes they pasty. Not some pasty teacher or, you know, um, tech screens or anything. It's very hands-on and tailored towards people's interests so that they can really cultivate those passions early on. You on mute, Lisa. I have a question for each of you, because you, Tanisha, I believe you touched on there, would there be any police in the schools? And I did not grow up with police in the school. So I want to hear, did you guys all have police in the schools? So I, I will say, I don't remember having armed police in schools. I thankfully, Tanisha, I'm glad you said this about Montessori school. Um, I started school in Montessori and mm -hmm. just remember what that, what that looked and felt like and how that has like stayed with me forever. Um, and people associate that uh, type of schooling to the French, right? Um, but it is not. It is literally steeped in African culture and how it is that they push their children to be self-sufficient and to do their, you know, to learn how to support themselves very early on. Um, and so the woman who created Montessori is built out of that principle. And I know the French often raise their children similar to that, but we all know that Africa is everywhere. Um, so not having police in school is is really based on like what part of the country you you live in, whether or not you're in a school district that has tons of money and they don't feel that they need it. Because last time I checked, there there are you know metal detectors in urban centers, but it's white kids that go into their schools and shoot them up. So I can't really explain how that works, or that you know we just so happen to be you know gaslit into thinking that it's an issue that we only have. But um, it all depends on whether or not you're in an urban center. I know in some of the schools that uh, KIPP has throughout the different regions, they don't have armed guards or armed security, but they have SROs. So police officers who are assigned to be in the school, but more as security. Um, and we're making sure that they're not going in to be part of the disciplinary practice um, within the school. And, oh, go ahead. No, I was just I was just going to answer Lisa's question. I I am um I graduated from Chicago Public Schools. Um my whole K through 12 career was in public schooling and in high school we did have metal detectors and I actually went to one of the highest performing high schools in Chicago at the time, um a magnet school actually around the corner from Barack Obama's house. So we did have school resource officers that um didn't necessarily they didn't pose a threat or they weren't intimidating or anything like that. They were black. They were more so like the homies. You know, if you got in trouble, they tried to stop you from cutting up. But otherwise, you know, you go into the dean's office. But they did have a presence. We did have metal detectors. And looking back on that, you know, it's it's um that desensitization that we feel as black people. I, I was on the show um a couple of weeks ago and I was talking about how growing up in Inglewood, we would hear gunshots and we would keep playing. You know, it's like, oh, they shooting. Okay, you know, let's get this basketball going and this double dutch going. But as an adult, I'm traumatized because we didn't know the difference back then. It's just what we grew up around. And so going to a school with metal detectors, we walked through every day like it was normal. You know, so um, like Naomi said, in those urban centers, that presence is um, does exist. And again, depending on what school you go, it really doesn't matter what school you go to because my school was diverse. Again, it was in Hyde Park around the corner from Barack Obama's house, and we still had that that presence. Let's talk about it, because um, weaponry and defense was like the prime of 
the entire movie. And I'm just going to talk about, because the princess, I mean, she was the, the most advanced developing all of the weaponry for the Black Panther, for the king. And so would students be learning defense? Would they be armed? Would, would, how would that look? I personally think that if we're going to talk about designing a Black Utopia school, I think that self-defense is critical. I also think that financial literacy is critical. I think that some type of mental health option, being able to like learn how to meditate and really address some issues is critical. Like, and this is outside of academics. These are just like the soft skills that I think we are we need for our survival. So, will weapons be in school? Probably. But I think that if you educate students or kids early on how to use them and the importance of them and the harm that they can cause, then it will deep. I think that it will decrease the um, a the imagination. Right? You now you're not curious as to like if I shoot somebody, what does this look like? Because you already know what that looks like, right? And um, our survival, like you, you need to be able to defend yourself. Period. Well, you know, in a country where you know, it's woven into the Constitution to have the Second Amendment and your right to self-defense. I'm glad that we're touching on this topic. I know my mom, she grew up in the South and she knew how to shoot. She knew how to hunt. It was just woven into your life. I actually know another gentleman that I work with. He told me that he actually won two shotguns at, uh, at school. And he was called to the principal's office and they handed him two shotguns and said, go put this in your locker. So... This is something that's been around for centuries. And now we're having this conversation about people not being able to have self-defense. And that concerns me. So I'm glad that to see once again, these are we have to take it topic by topic and see, can we get on the same page about what this utopia looks like? So it sounds like that we can get on the same page that self-defense is something that's important to learn from an early age. I agree. Um, just, you know, first and foremost, I am a black woman with a gun. Because <laughs> people people don't know how to act. Um, but I do agree on the point around self-defense and teaching our kids those those critical components of, you know, not only protecting themselves, but, but being self-sustaining. So financial literacy and um, investments, all kind of stuff is important. And that, to me, um, is an important piece of the conversation of reimagining education, period, because some of this curriculum that we see is just completely useless. And so what do our kids need right now to survive and thrive is what I want to talk about, not what's existed because it hasn't worked for us, but what I want to talk about in incorporating in that utopia. Yeah. So, and I, I know I'm, I, y'all see a little bit of my greenery, but I'm like literally living in the jungle. I got a fountain in my apartment and everything. And so uh, like, I, I would literally see, schools like if i was little to obliterate what we have now i would probably put a group of kids outside in a tree house just surrounded by greenery all the time fresh air where students are literally learning about everything every single little thing that they see you know oh i see a, a cat but I see a, a, a llama, you know, okay, so we're about to go deep into llamas, you know, we're, mm -hmm. I see the little vibranium, what is that? How do I use it? What do I do with it? Um, just every single moment is a learning opportunity. 
so I sit on uh, the the authorizing board for charter schools here in D.C. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm always excited about, it's a little daunting when it happens, you know, that time of year comes along, but during application season and being able to see the applications for charter schools here in the district. Um, and this last round of uh, reviews and uh, the applications that we had, there were multiple schools that just, you know, were far beyond what we imagine when we think about traditional schools. Um, one of those schools being the social justice school. And what does that look like? And this is something that is, is a, it's a middle school and they're thinking about how do you change what that means when you're establishing for children, when they're coming out of elementary school, trying to prepare and to go through this next phase of their lives. What does that look like? And I often joke about middle school being the exploration uh, phase of, of school, like you being out in your city, learning it, you being able to travel, you being able to like have that time to really just re be reflective about what you learned in uh, K through six and really, you know, shift your gears to think about how do I apply that to the rest of my life? And I think that's similar to, you know, what they do in Montessori. Are you sitting in a classroom all day doing, you know, doing uh, rote memory? No, you're literally applying all of those things to learning and building upon the stair steps of what you know. The frustration I have about where we are now when it comes to just limiting what black children have exposure to, kids have phones with them from like the age of like seven or eight. Some parents have, you know, kids have phones that early. But the curiosity, I could not imagine having the curiosity that was instilled in me in Montessori and to have a phone with me and still ask questions because you can get every question you need answered right here. Like the technology is right there. You want to know something, you can ask Google. You don't have to go to the Encyclopedia Britannica the way that we used to with a magnifying glass trying to look through and figure stuff out. You literally have all of that readily available to you. So instilling, instilling that idea of like curiosity and being able to have them flourish in that and, and grow in that and using technology to do that, what would be possible? Man, do y'all remember having to carry those books and like <laughs> as adults, our shoulders look like W's because Girl. the book bags were wearing our shoulders yeah. down. Girl. Like, I just hear flashbacks, like traumatic flashbacks. Right? That whole, that <laughs> set of encyclopedias. I had a yes. book bag. <laughs> even, even to your point, Naomi, where it's like that frustration of some of our kids, where it's like, I literally have the world in my hand, I see all of everything this that other people are able to experience and do, and I'm not able to do any of that. That's right. It's like That's when right. we saw the movie, how we said in the beginning, like, wait, does Wakanda, if somebody has a Wakanda out here in these streets and are they're going resources, like, we're going to be frustrated. And so it's like our kids, they see the world. And so yeah, they're going to be frustrated when they go into the classroom and they know that a kid is being able to tap into their potential and you're not. And you're going to have some disciplinary issues. Like, yes, you are stifled in my potential. You are limiting me. And, you, and I know that other stuff exists because I have it right here in my hand. Like, But you know what? What I see a lot of times in having conversations with young people in Chicago is that they don't know. You know, they don't know what they don't have access to because they haven't been exposed to it, even some parents. And so I think that, you know, um, again, in reimagining education and just exposing, like it's our job to show them what they've been, I don't want to say missing out on, but, you know, what they've been denied. 
And so I just I just have a lot of conversation with kids. They they just don't know. And so they think again that this is the norm. Everything that that's in their schools and the classrooms and the neighborhoods is no, the norm. And it's sad. Well, you know, one of the things that I got interested in when I got interested in this topic, school choice and education freedom, and I, that's why I framed my event as Can School Choice Defeat Poverty? So when we set this goal, we set this marker, we know where we are right now. And I always say, well, before you can move on to anything new, you have to have almost an autopsy over the previous situation. So you can say, what was failing? What goes wrong? And the first thing, and I know Denise has touched on this as well, that I thought obviously needs to go away is this zip code based system where you are tied to your zip code. And I, I literally got a piece of paper and I sat down and I made a list of things that have nothing to do with my zip code. No one says, Lisa, you can only work in the jobs associated with your zip code. Lisa, you can only eat in restaurants that are associated with your zip code. You can only go to doctors that are associated with your zip code. So this, this antiquated system that we have where you cannot access anything, any education outside of your zip code, I think that's the first thing that would not exist in Wakanda. If we were in Wakanda and there was a school on the other side of the country, since they had those magic flying things, you would be able to go to whatever school was best, that was, that was gonna serve your child best. If your child- well, well, let's talk about that, Lisa, because actually they didn't open up their resources until that was a part of the conversation. No, no, I mean, uh, if I lived in Wakanda, I'm a Wakanda citizen. Like I'm yeah. a citizen of the United States. I'm not saying open it up. Yeah. They, that's their decision whether or not they want to open up their country and resources. I, I support either um, direction. But if I'm a citizen of Wakanda, would they say, no, you can only go to the school in your zip code? Or would yeah. I be able to say, well, my child's pre-med and there's a, a really great biology program over at the other side of town and I want to enroll her in that school. I don't imagine that they would make up a system that's zip code based because it's whatever the child can thrive in. That's what we're supposed to be reaching out for. So let's just say right now you live in a certain zip code, but maybe you work in another zip code and there's a school right next to your job. You might say, well, I, I drive there every day. I want my child to go to school in this other zip code. And you're basically, you're committing a crime. This is something that some people got together and said, we're gonna codify in law. We're gonna debate this in the legislature. We're gonna pass it on to the other chamber. And it's gonna be signed by a governor. And they're gonna say, we have punitive um, punishments, fines and jail time because you took your child from one school to another. I mean, how logical is that? Yeah. And, and having this conversation of school choice in our utopia, right? Like, no, you're not, because yeah. everyone would have access to the education that best suits them. That it wouldn't be a thing of, oh, I have to leave the traditional system and go to another, or I have to go to a private school, um, or I have to go through this this uh, magnet program. The the any and everything would be available. And right. I think somebody said at the top. We would have a buffet of options. That is literally what the, the charter promise was supposed to be. Um, and I think there are some organizations that are holding true to that. They're, they're learning, they're, they're doing things in a non-traditional way so that they can see what is possible outside those boundaries. But if, if, you know, if this was Wakanda, why would we, we wouldn't have zip codes. We wouldn't even have any of that. We would have micro schools. And for the kids that want to learn how to do screenwriting, they could go to school and do that. 
for, you know, but everybody would have the ability to learn because we would all see each other as our children's teachers. Right. How do we pour into them in a way that everybody is teaching at some point? And it's not a, it's not about the building, but the community, right? That the community is responsible for how we pour into these young people, that the community is responsible for what if we do have classrooms, what those classrooms feed into the children that are sitting there. <coughs> I think you have something to say. I would just also add that if this was Wakanda, I think that educators or teachers were probably some of the most highly recognized individuals because they would meet, they're responsible for educating <coughs> the next generation of people and citizens and world leaders. So we will have a lot more respect for our educators. And also I think it would be a position of pride, right? Because like we mentioned earlier, it just wouldn't be specific to like, okay, we're teaching you mathematics right now. I think that the best form of education, especially given the level of technology that we have, is outdoor. you need to get children outside of four walls. They need to understand in real life how what they're learning in a classroom is directly applicable to the world. They need to understand how things work together. And um, yes, yeah, so they need to understand how things work together and like what they're learning in school, how can they advance it, change it, become better, like really show students the importance of all aspects of life. I think sometimes in a traditional or charter school system, we do have a hierarchy to what we think is success sometimes, right? I want to teach my student to be a doctor, a lawyer, like, but no one says I want my child to be a farmer, even though we all have to eat, right? So, yeah, I just think that we really need to go ahead and rethink what this looks like and really take down the walls in um, our education system, literally and figuratively. Oh, Brianna, you just touched on something that was next on my list, so I have to jump in here. I, 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 again, wait a minute, wait a minute. hold that thought. I'm going to show this uh, quick clip. Okay. Did he freeze? I can interlope in headlines. <laughs> Are you finished? So surprised my little sister came to see me off before our big day. You wish. I'm here for the EMP beats. I've developed an update. Update? No. It worked perfectly. How many times do I have to teach you? Just because something works doesn't mean that it cannot be improved. You are teaching me. What do you know? More than you. I can't wait to see what kind of update you make to your ceremonial outfits. Now, I wanted to show that clip because we're going right into a conversation about teaching and who are teachers and what and how are they esteemed and are we deconstructing the teacher role? What do you guys think about the the teacher construct in our utopia? Oh, I'm deconstructing it. <laughs> I am uh, almost eliminating the traditional teacher role. Um, in my utopia, we actually use what I call citizen teachers. So there may be a skeleton crew of traditional teachers because everyone doesn't know physics and, and organic chemistry. But I find that in the United States, and this has been a shift in my research, that we do not use enough of our community resources in education, particularly in the black community. We have a lot of institutional knowledge that's just dying out. For example, 
um, let's just say I had a utopian school in Kansas City and I have the local barber and he's been in the community for 40 or 50 years. No one gives him any esteem. Meanwhile, he knows how to run a business. Meanwhile, he knows how to um, be a staple in the community. Why can't I bring him in a couple of days a year and let him teach how to run a small business? He has the knowledge just because he did not have to go to school and get letters behind his name. He probably knows how to run a business better than the person that has the letter behind their name. And all they do is read books and stand in front of a classroom. So that's just a waste of institutional knowledge. Um, another topic that I think is woven throughout Wakanda, probably number one of the number one themes that is not obvious is the strong family. Look at the relationship that they just had. That was adorable, the conversation that they had, the siblings. You can feel the love. I think that's what people are responding to when they watch that film. You're responding to the bond that they had through the community, through the nation, and in the family. And if we don't own our own schools, we are not going to be in control of building families in the Black community. You can't ask someone else to build, let's just say, a Jewish family. If Jewish people put me in charge of building Jewish families, I don't think it's going to look anything like what it looks like right now because I don't have the capacity to teach that. That's why they right. have Jewish schools. And right. guess what? We have, I, I looked these numbers up too as well. There's almost 7,000 Catholic schools in America. Why? From day one, the founding of the country, Catholics said, oh, well, we, are, we have to teach children how to be Catholic. And no one ever thought that was odd. They're Jewish schools. No well, one. I, 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 I'm not Catholic and I attended at a Catholic high school. Mm -hmm. But the idea of what does it look like to uh, to create pipelines to teaching that are thoughtful, but also recognize the, the institutional knowledge. Like you said, Lisa, like I said earlier, the idea of the community being responsible for teaching. We know that the problems with the teaching force now with the limited number of people of color um, and BIPOC individuals that are in the teaching force, that that can't be strengthened. We can't increase those numbers because of the, the parameters around what it means to be approved and certified as a teacher. Those rules and regulations, people found ways to try to work around that. We've created this, um, I, I don't wanna call it a utopia because it's not perfect, but we created a space and opportunity for people to do it in a non-traditional way. So what are the ways that we can continue to build upon that and think of new ways to to certify people to be in the classroom, to certify people to, to serve as uh, mentors where you're not necessarily a teacher, but you have a, 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 an expertise that you go into um, and, and impart to, to students. It should be a community led effort. It should be something that's thought of as this is not just something that people who went to school for uh, 16 to 20 years and are now approved to do something. It should be something that is held at a certain level of esteem. When you look at other countries and how they think about teachers, teachers are held in the same esteem as doctors. Those people cannot be doctors without the foundation of what teachers are instilling them, correct? correct? So how are we thinking about what those, like creating pipelines? When I went to go work at UNCF, I sat down with my former boss and said, I want a black TFA and he laughed He's a, a TFA relic. He was, I think, the second core that they ever had. And the idea behind that is not to copy what TFA created, because we created our own TFA when we had Freedom Summers. We've done this before. This isn't something that's rooted in, oh, well, I want to do what they're doing. No, we've, we've been the ones that have taught our children how to read. 
when no one around them would allow them to do so. We are the ones that have done that work and how do we take the innovative ways that things that work for us and improve upon them. Like Shuri said, like we have something that works, but it's right now it's working within the systems that exist that are preventing us from being able to do that. That that to me is the frustration of being black in the space of trying to like shift and reform what is happening in education, that we're still limited by the resources that don't belong to us. But the idea of community teaching, community mentorship, community being woven into all that we do, that 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 should be the center of how we apply and approach what specifically teaching. But how are you dealing with the 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 mechanisms that you keep running up against? Like for example, having to have certification, have to have so many hours of this. That system is not gonna give away. I mean for me that would I mean if you want to be certified, I think well, in my, in, in my in my view of in my utopian Wakandan education system, there would be literally like a master of teaching, like right up with who's sitting down with the king, who like know everything that's going on within the nation and can speak to like and who mentors teachers, like so not like teacher oh, grios. Exactly. And so we would like literally it would be the, the shortest line between what's happening in the proverbial classroom, what students are actually learning. And then and also there was the scene where after he officially got the kingship, he was like in the sand right before he saw his daddy. There was a little girl who was shoveling the sand right along with the grandmas, like on on Black Panther. And that's how I see it really. I'm like, wait. That wasn't a classroom, but she was learning what her role was from an early age and learning everything that there was to be that role when she got older. And so I guess kind of I guess that would fit into the CPE type of conversation of, you know, these, of you know, apprenticeships and things like that. But I don't think all the, the credentialing and how we just constricted people really. I'm. I mean, it's intentional, though, right? Uh, the reason people can't pass the praxis is because they don't have the fundamental knowledge that they were supposed yeah. to see early on in their educational journey. I mean, that's really what that's rooted in. So we're in a circle. We're just, in a circular reasoning. You can't get out because of the system that's in place, and you can't change the system because of the system that's in place. And for me, I'm always saying exit the system. I can't stay on the on the merry-go-round. I'm always like, I'm out. That's why I'm saying I'm like black people really need to get in the mindset of who go check me, boo. Mm -hmm. Like seriously, um, I, I just I, my piece that's coming out this week is talking about even though we're in the midst of a pandemic, we have a real opportunity to again create our own freedom school. So we see these rich white people creating these pods, and yeah, they got money to hire their own teachers and stuff, but we again have those untapped resources. And so they can tell us all day that our kids got to go back to school or they got to do distance learning, knowing that both alternatives are going to be detrimental to our kids' education to overall, overall widen these opportunity gaps. And so we have to be innovative in reimagining education. So I'm thinking that while we have Rand Paul introducing this, um, this school legislation in which that funding will follow the child, we use that money, we, we got to go get the bag. We go get the bag from the government. We use everything that they give that we can take that per pupil funding 
if they're defunding police, like Chicago just cut $18 million from um, SRO budgets. We take that money, we invest that all into our local nonprofit organizations, our local churches. We host our own pods there, hire our own teachers, our own curriculum writers. And it's like, who go check us? That's our money and these are our kids and this is our education to own. So forget what everybody else is talking about. Forget about this system. Forget about what this system claims they're teaching us because at night we can do it ourselves. Like Naomi said, it's been done. It's been done. And that's the that's the key. When you go back and you research and you say, but this is what they used to do. So if this is what we used to do, we just went to this tiny little years, you know, a couple of decades where things got way off course. And it's just like when your mother says, well, when you know better, you do better. So mm -hmm. we know better. So let's just do better. And we all and I know I'm sorry, I have to try to get this last point in that we built HBCU starting in the 1830s. So 30 years before slavery ended, we were saying, let's build a college. Mm -hmm. So why, if we can build colleges, we can build kindergartens. That's my tagline. <laughs> and I know Brianna wanted to chime in. I did, but it's more along the lines of like really incorporating the community into our education system and just some easy wins that I see now, like from a charter school that was started by a church, really just, I don't want to say turning grades or academics into currency, but if students don't see the connection outside of the classroom, then they're never going to learn, right? And so that's e easily something as simple as talking to the local bodega and say, listen, we're willing to partner with you. If X amount of students get this percentage of hire, give them 50 cents off a sandwich. That's currency. Now they see the need or the importance to care about what's happening inside the classroom outside of the immediate because they can tangibly get a benefit from it. And so using that type of mindset with all things within the community and also allowing people within the community to be teachers and educators. And I'm all for knocking down the praxis. <laughs> Right. And the, you know, the school uh, network that I work with um, was very uh, innovative in the idea of taking the way that Harriet Ball showed up in her classroom and creating that type of environment. in I would almost say like pods across the country. The one thing that really frustrates me about the pushback on charter, the charter space. Um, and I've always said I'm not an advocate for charter schools. I'm an advocate for black liberation. And we know that there are schools that have been founded by black people. There are schools that are led by black people that are doing tremendous work and doing a heavy lift based on like this one way to like do this a different way. And hearing people tear that down because of bad actors in this, in the space that we currently live in is, is frustrating in one that you're ignoring the, 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 so, I mean, indigenous people, um, Latinx, people of color period that are really and truly pouring into to students because they knew that there was an additional pathway. They knew that there was another way to do this. And that not to say that it is the panacea. It is not the all and all be all. But the idea of like what Tanisha was saying, how is it that we can pool our money and think about doing this differently? If you look at LeBron James starting his school, which is, you know, by definition, they say it's not a charter school, but I think that's semantics. It is a charter school. That's semantics. Right. That's <laughs> it's, it's semantics. It's a charter school. But how do we create and use that opportunity for us to build our own, for our own Harriet Balls that exist now to be able to create micro schools, micro schools that allow for that innovation to take place for us to improve upon and then go back and share. And I think that's what my frustration is and how we look at this in a very binary way. If you don't sit with the traditional folks, 
that you don't really care about teachers. No, I care about teachers. And I know there's some teachers who would be amazing at building a curriculum that would stand on the principles of blackness that we all share, but they don't have the ability to raise the money, do all the things that come along with building an institution. So how do you give people the opportunity to do that? And I think the pod situation is a great opportunity to, to at least test the waters and see what's possible. Now, let me ask you guys this, because of course, Wakanda was beautiful. The infrastructure was immaculate. It was gorgeous. Like, what? how do you feel about, because I've gone into some mom and pop uh, schools that are teaching kids and that are doing an effective job, but because they look a little different, because they're in a daycare or in a townhouse, uh, because they're empowered to be in different spaces that they can operate in, they're kind of looked down on. Like in our utopia, like would a school operate inside of a barbershop and would we really be okay with that? Or does it have to look like bowls? Does it have to look like St. Andrews in order for us to give it a steam? Um, so I worked for uh, the District of Columbia government when Mayor Fenty took over the schools. And one of the first things he did when he took mayoral control of DCPS was to make sure that we revitalized each of the school buildings. So there were schools that had had all types of, you know, damage, et cetera, over the years that they had existed. We had built schools that had limited windows and were built to look like prisons. So what he did was let me make sure that we create school spaces that are beautiful. Now, do, does that mean that every school has to look a traditional way, you know, a schoolhouse, that, that whole idea? We don't have to have that, but being able to have a space for people to gather as community that is, you know, respectful of their, their, um, respectful of their community shows and, and demonstrates ways to honor the, um, the, their ancestors and the people that came before them, but on the, at the same time, giving space and opportunity for people to be able to, you know, innovate and be thoughtful. And you really you can do that in really nice spaces. So I don't I don't believe that it has to be um, it doesn't have to be the the beautiful uh, Conrad version of a school. But it does need to it needs to fit in a place where what you're learning is of the utmost importance is the focus of what you're doing. But where is that space that allows us to have nice things that that help you think that help you be innovative, that help you sit in that space of like, I'm respected because this this place reflects that. Well, for me, um, I have a unique perspective coming from the Kansas City metro area. And I'm not sure if most people are familiar with this, but um, Kansas City went under about a 20 plus year desegregation plan where the entire school district was run by a judge. They spent over two billion dollars with a B and the test scores did not move at all. So every building was rebuilt. They built schools with Olympic sized swimming pools, a model UN and one school apparently had its own zoo, but the learning did not change. So we have to, we know what makeup does to you but you're still you on the inside. It's about what's going on on the inside. So I would rather have that school in that barber shop or the school that Marva Collins built in her home where productivity was going on versus the illusion. It was all about the illusion. 
and we are suffering right now. They literally have schools in Kansas City where not one child in the entire building is on grade level, not one. But he's in a pretty building. I agree. I think that a part of just where a lot of low-income people stand in society is that we're trying to buy into an illusion. Knock down the illusion. We don't need it. I'd rather you just be learning what you really need to learn. Because if you really learn and you take kids outside of the classroom and you get their creativity going, they'll eventually make enough money to buy the building that you want anyway. Right. And buy exactly. the facilities that we need. But we can't get there as long as we're trying to dress things up. Right. When you right. think about students who are in other parts of the world, they're coming here and they're blowing our students off the park. Right. But they're not right. in pretty buildings. And some of them don't even have textbooks. And some of them are walking miles and miles and miles to get to school because it's, I think it's less about what's pretty and more about a your family structure. We need to value education at the family level first and foremost. Right. right. We need to change the way we think about teachers and educators and value them as well. Because if you think that students don't notice that we are undermining our teachers, then we're being delusional. Yeah. When, um, and Tanisha, to the point you made earlier, uh, so when we're talking about, even now, so this is timely, COVID-19, you brought up funding, and you brought up things, the pods, and things that could be happening now in order for Black and brown people to create school systems or schooling environments that are conducive for learning for black and brown kids. And um, so y'all talk about that a little bit, you guys, like what are, what are some things that people can do now? Like, of course we have, we have people who are starting pods, like, which is, which is awesome. Like I appreciate that, but the most needy people, the kids who were, in the 11th grade who are on the verge of dropping out of school, pause are not really gonna help them. Um, yeah. Well, when I, I'm a person that's really in strategic thinking. And at the end of the day, we have to look at it like we're at war. And when you go to war, you, you let make a list of all your resources. So in the United States, there are over 330,000 churches in America. That represents infrastructure and a significant number of these churches. Let's just even say 10 percent. And it's even more. 10 percent of that is thirty three thousand buildings that would probably be owned and controlled by the black community already. So now we have buildings and they usually sit empty five days a week. So we can now say these are this is infrastructure that we need to tap into. Let's get a meeting with the parents in that area and start putting together these pods. And we start doing these little experiments all over the country with these pods and saying, how many teachers do we need? Can we make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for these kids? Can you bring a sack lunch, which is what people did for the majority of the time? They didn't even have a food program. So it wouldn't be that complicated for us to build these systems and then make a manual and just send that manual out to parents all around the country and say, these are the 10 states that you take to start um, uh, your own little private network in your area and let us know how it goes. And then we start building our own network of these schools that are owned and you're gonna make mistakes and then you're gonna learn from other schools. But again, we have the major piece and that's the buildings and they already have a gas bill, they already have a light bill, they already have water, they already usually have some kind of place to prep food, they have spaces, slap some flat screen TVs on the wall and start pumping in some curriculum and we can be moving. 
But Denisha, to a, to address your point, when you said you meant, made a comment about um, those kids who maybe might won't thrive in the pod or I just so we we've lost some kids to this pandemic. Right. Like I know that in Chicago a few months ago, they said that only 60 percent of CPS students logged on twice a week. And so realistically, we like distance learning. And the original plan was for seniors, I believe, to do full distance learning. I know when I was in high school, if I didn't have to go to school, I'm not going to school. You know, if my teacher wasn't in class, I'm playing spades. I'm not reading a book. So, you know, I, and with that, um, especially with the gun violence or violence period rising in our communities, you know, don't even get me started on that. I think that's some other stuff. But we can lose a lot of kids um, to the gaps and to the disparities. Right. But I don't think that these kids are lost. And so my my larger answer is because people ask me all the time, like I do a lot of advocacy work and organizing activism work. And they're like, well, what should we do? I don't have the answer. I just do what I feel is right. Right. And so one of the things that I feel is right is that if every adult that had common sense, every able bodied adult, if they just reached out and mentored one of these kids, you see a kid on the corner, you see a kid wherever you see a kid cutting up in a grocery store or whatever. If you have a conversation, spend some time with them, actually ask them how they doing, tell them I love you, whatever they need. What? Because it's a kid, they crying out for something. And so if we all did that as adults, we wouldn't lose them. And then maybe we can bring them to these pods because then, you know, it's like we created this pod that's special, that's especially for you. You know, and so I think it starts there. Like we have to really be the mentors and the adults that these kids need. And then we can bring them back to these systems that we want them to thrive in. So um, that's kind of that's one of my answers as far as resources. Um, we're the resources all day, every day. Um, I would add to that that I think that if we're if we're going with Lisa's model, right, about using our churches, then we need to make sure that we're including a plan that also incorporate families, especially at this level, because sometimes we need to be the adults that these students need, but sometimes the adults need adults to be helpful to them because they're also struggling in their own ways because no one ever reached out to them and told them, I love you, or you could be successful. So in this um, inter inter intergenerational system where like no one told you you could be successful, successful, so you don't tell your child they can be successful, where who's coming in? to meet that need, to help break that cycle. And so if education or if church is where we're spending a lot of our time and money, so I agree, we need to be using those buildings and those spaces to really reach out to the families and the communities and begin to start creating an education system that includes families. Because right. we all need to be on the same page. If the adults can't get on the same page, then how are we gonna make sure the children are on the same page? Right. I'm gonna um, and this is not what we're talking about, but it kind of speaks to what you were talking. You and Tanisha, Brianna, um, uh, you talked about earlier, you know, taking kids' interests and tapping into that, and using that to cultivate learning. Funny story, but not really so funny. So these little kids, and I, I live in D.C. I'm transitioning to Florida. They were um, smoking weed in my apartment building, and I said, I, you know, a teachable lesson. Like, come on, y'all, y'all trespassing. Y'all need to get on, move out the way. And I literally talked to these little boys for like 30 minutes, um, talked about Jesus, talking about staying in school, like literally they were, they just stayed there. So I'm like, as long as y'all here, I'm just going to talk to you. Fine by me. Like, like, why are you talking so much? I'm like, y'all at my place. Like, if y'all don't want to listen to me talk, y'all can leave. Anyway, so I'm like, talk, nothing phased them. Like they were just like, uh, you know, 
I said, y'all spending y'all money, their ears perked up. I'm like, y'all spending y'all money paying somebody to smoke weed. Y'all could start y'all own. Seriously, I'm like, do y'all understand how much money Literally. you see? Like how much money you make? Like, but that goes back to that business. Like things, rich kids, where they at? Like, I am I promise the teacher will probably never tell the kid that. Maybe I shouldn't tell them kids that. But I'm like, but the idea that we have people who are locked up and could possibly, and yeah. possibly locked up for the rest of their lives for doing something that CNBC talks about and has shows about on a regular basis that people are making money hand over fist in very particular states, uh, Colorado, um, Maryland. I think they, they also have dispensaries. There are dispensaries here and there are black dispensaries. But the idea that you have people who are entrepreneurs, who are business minded, who are thriving and doing their work but they're now rotting in jail while there are people that are doing that and making money. Um, so there, yes, it was like, they probably didn't leave because they were a little tired. They may have been moving a little more slowly than they would have otherwise. But I mean, but the idea of like, yeah, they, they listened because what you were saying and imparting to them made sense. If it didn't make sense, they would have walked off. Right. But that goes back to that. That's community teaching. That's the, that you, you probably sparked something that none of them even thought about. Like, is that possible for you? Absolutely. And here's the name of a dispensary that's owned by a black person. And you should go talk to them. So those opportunities, when they arise, because our community is built on respect, because our community is built on how do we how do we have a communal experience? We should be thinking about showing up for kids in that way. And I know in, in our our imaginary Wakanda that will one day happen. That is something that would be commonplace. Yes. Yeah. Now let's do our last round robin. We talked about criminal justice, police, our community, just not even inside the classroom. We've talked about self-defense, weaponry. We talked about the teaching, learning professor, curriculum, infrastructure. We've literally tapped on a lot of stuff in our conduct. And so we'll go around one last time, something that you would like to leave the people with of what would be in, in your utopia. I think the first thing I think about is that there will be no school uniforms. I will allow students to wear what they want to wear, um, express themselves in the way they want to express themselves, and that includes their hair. I think that we police children too much when it comes to what they wear and how they dress, do their hair, and what colors. Listen, they have the rest of their lives to be a professional adult and dress in a business suit. Like, let them have pink hair, go through that phase, express themselves in whatever way they can. So, and we may have like budding fashion designers. So I think the first thing I would do is remove uniforms. Okay, in my black utopian school, um, I would what weave the theme that we've talked about for the last hour, and that is building a black owned and controlled economy that I would be using K through 12 education to build a black economy that is a school system that's not zip code based. I would not have the police in the schools. We didn't touch upon this, but I would also weave in us using building our own food systems into the school model where we would have our own farm, we would grow our own food, and the kids would, at some point, you need to go get the food and cook the food and serve the food. And we may even have a restaurant to supplement the income so everything would be about how do we build an integrated economy using this education model? 
in my utopian school, um, the foundation of the curriculum would be the Kwanzaa principles. Um, the guiding light would be Sankofa. And I say that because our history has been so whitewashed and our kids are so unaware. And that's one of the, the most, the major disempowerment tools that's being used to keep our communities oppressed. And so my, yeah, it would be, it would be heavily focused around our history and empowerment and making sure that our kids are equipped to carry our, our communities and our future communities, um, with, with that greatness that we were born with and that our ancestors left us with that, that runs in our veins. I'll be getting deep in the afternoon. <laughs> no, that's, listen, <laughs> stay there. <laughs> um, I agree with all the things that have been said. As somebody who wore a uniform every day in high school, I absolutely appreciated it because it was easy for me to like get dressed and not have to do anything. But I also, because I had the opportunity to visit tons of schools, have been to a school that was just like my high school. And I remember walking in and was like, this is like my high school where people were just really free to be whoever they were, despite the fact it was a, it was a Catholic school. We had uniforms, but those kids weren't wearing uniforms and they were just as like, they were thriving in ways that we probably thought we were, but we weren't. But being able to expose kids to, you know, here, find yourself. We know that that, that is what happens when kids go off to college, if that is their choice. But the idea of like, explore any and everything you want to see and do, be able to run and play. I think how we've changed and shifted school, the school model of like walking in straight lines and being quiet and being, you know, com uh, you know, complacent and, and, and living in that way versus how do you live your fullest self in the moment in the year that you were in, in that, you know, at that time. Um, but, you know, the utopia of schools would have uh, community built into it. If, if and whenever this would happen, it would allow for all the, the things that we don't have for, like, for adults to be able to have that at their d disposal. If you need literacy help, you can get that at our school. If you need help with food, we have a garden, a community garden. If your five year old needs to learn how to be, you know, a little more self sufficient, that's going to happen too. So how do we create a space where community shows up all the way? This is great. I am going to leave us off on this because I think this is why we do the work that we do. And this is exactly why we need a revolt. This is exactly why now during this time in COVID-19, we need to have our own schools and to do what we need to do to secure the funding, secure the infrastructure to make and create our own schools. And you, this, right, and you didn't even have to highlight those people's quotes. And so we, but I, it is real though, and it is, it's a conversation that we didn't get into today. Of course, guys, follow the Black Minds Matter a video series. We talk about um, all of this and more um, with uh, of white supremacy and, and education system racism. And so we uh, definitely talk about all these things in the whole Black Minds Matter. And today we talked about designing our own utopia. And it will happen. And it has happened all across the country. And thank you guys all so 
for your for your work um, and for all that you do on behalf of kids. Thank you. Thank you, Denisha. And good being on with all y'all. Same, same. Bye, Thanks for listening to the Black Minds Matter podcast. You can watch the video of this episode on YouTube. Our goal is simple. We seek to ensure every child receives a quality education in the school of their parents' choosing.